This ad-free podcast is part of your Slate Plus membership. Dear Prudence. 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 Do you think that I should contact him again? Help. Help. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you. Hello, and welcome back to the Dear Prudence Show once again. And as always, I am your host, Dear Prudence, otherwise known as Daniel Mallory Ortberg. With me in the studio this week is Zara Norbash, co-host of the hashtag Good Muslim, Bad Muslim podcast. And the Pop Cultural Collaborative has named her their senior fellow on comedy for social change. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Congratulations on being named something. Thank you. How's that feel? I love titles. It's kind of cool, right? Yeah. Yeah. Especially on comedy right now. Like, so much is happening with comedy. Some, would, you, would you like to talk about any of it? Yes. What's your favorite change? Well, definitely Hannah Gatsby's special that is being called a comedy special, right? Like, people aren't referring to it as a one-person show. They're referring to it as a comedy special, which I think is fantastic. The the Nanette discourse. Yes. I have I've seen the Nanette discourse, like, cascading over my timeline for months. <laughs> And I still have not seen it. Oh, I can't wait for you to see it. All right. I will add that to the list of um, things that my guests have told me to see. Yeah, it has the the number of one-person shows like Hassan Minhaj's Homecoming King mm. uh, that are being regarded as comedy specials is a really big deal because when uh, folks who are categorized as quote-unquote other, whether we're uh, people of color or identify as LGBTQ uh, or women, uh, just not cis, hetero, white males, basically. I remember that special. Yeah, it felt very much like some comedy, some like memoir slideshow, right. some something else. Right. And I also remember that he's very, very handsome, which is not the point, but I just remember that he's, he's ridiculously handsome. telegenic. Yes. He's wonderful. <laughs> it, when, whenever uh, folks who are categorized as other have a comedy special, it gets relegated to the category of one person show mm. because there's an amount of, quote, you know, educating that has to happen. Uh, and versus the stand up comedy scene that is a bar scene uh, where it's just like set up punchline, set up punchline. But part of the reason why they get to do that is because they don't have to do all this educating, you know. Um, and so I'm just really glad that. These aren't just being called one-person shows, that they're also being seen and regarded for what is their vocation and trade and careers, comedy specials. I'm all for more of that. I am also excited then to um, treat the letters today as one-person shows. Oh, I like and that. To, to think about, like, what's this person trying to tell me about their life and their choices? And um, the first one... Um, it's sort of near and dear to my heart just because I feel like there's a number of categories that like if you simply say them in an advice column, you will get people out of the woodwork for days. Um, and picky eating or the idea of picky eating is definitely one of them. Oh, man. No shortage of opinions on picky eating. Especially in the Bay Area. Especially, as you say, in the Bay Area. So lucky you. You get to read that letter. Would you um, do us the honor of kicking it off? Yes. Impossibly picky husband. Dear Prudence, my husband and I have been married for a few years. We have gradually stopped getting invitations to my family's events and vacations. The problem is that my husband has a medical condition that creates very real dietary restrictions and is also an incredibly picky eater. Trying to figure out how to eat with him is regularly a nightmare. After narrowing possible choices down to what he can eat, he will often rule out almost everything on the grounds that he doesn't want to eat it. It's tedious and frustrating for everyone involved. My family has responded by inviting us to fewer and fewer family things. I've talked to my husband about his pickiness and the impact it has, but he says he just cares about food more than I do. I miss my family. How can I fix this? So I think it's important to start by saying um, I have no interest in saying people who are picky eaters should become non-picky eaters um, or that you will automatically become a better person if you eat lots and lots of things off of a menu. So, you know, if your husband, in addition to his medical restrictions, is a picky eater, uh, that's not in itself a problem. The problem uh, is two things, I think. One is that uh, apparently he, he he has made you and also your family responsible for um, – 
his food choices, which is not cool. And the other is that he says he just cares about food more than I do. That's not the problem. The problem's not that he cares a lot about food. The problem is that he doesn't seem to be putting any time or energy or investment ahead of time if he knows he's going to be going somewhere where he can't eat things um, into figuring out how's he going to eat. Yeah, there. I have so many questions, like for the husband, you know, uh, and about the husband in terms of like, this is starting to seem to me almost like a manipulative tactic. Yeah. If he's making it so much other people's problems that they're like, it is not worth inviting him over anymore. Exactly. Why has he not like called ahead to the restaurant um, or like advocated for more restaurants that can accommodate his restrictions or, you know, if it's not eating a meal out in a restaurant, bringing his own food? Yeah, or just eat in advance and show up to the restaurant just to hang. Right. It doesn't it would be one thing if it was like my husband knows all this. He's really well prepared. He always has accommodations like in hand or at least is aware of what he could do. But my family is being a real jerk about it. That's not the case here at all. He's it sounds like um, every time a meal is involved, he acts like it is a surprise. (laughs) That's right. Yeah. Especially if this is like an ongoing thing. And there's clearly like some solutions around it. It it feels like a manipulative tactic. There's a little bit of like attention hoarding that it feels like is happening a bit. Right. Like the the partners become sort of isolated uh, and with the husband all the time. Yeah. Like thinking about his food, thinking about his health. Like, what about theirs? Yeah, yeah. And for for your husband, like, again, I don't want to say anybody with any dietary restrictions um, should just 100% of the time be, like, super, super focused and prepared and never ask other people to kind of meet them halfway. But that's not the case here. Like, um, why doesn't your husband bring his own food to these events? Like, why doesn't he think, what would he like to eat and then make that happen? Yeah, I mean, I went through a whole year and a half where I was on this acid reflux diet where literally all I could have was yogurt and bread and steamed chicken (laughs) and nothing that could make anything taste good. That's restrictive. Pretty restrictive. Most of the time I would eat in advance and just go hang out, Mm -hmm. you know, and I like sent out an email to a bunch of my friends to let them know, hey, like, don't feel bad. Don't feel like you have to make me have yummy food. Like, this is my situation. So we can hang. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it'd be one thing if your husband was doing that. And then the family was like simply seeing him have to have dietary restrictions is so unfun for us. We don't want him around. But again, not the case. So I think for you, letter writer, number one, um, you know, talk to your family, tell them that you miss them, tell them that you would like to attend these events, even if your husband can't. Um, And also, I think, talk with your husband about, you know, like, I want to go to this family event. You know that they won't have any of the handful of items that you can eat. I would love for you to come. Please make or bring something for yourself. And if that doesn't sound fun to you, I'm going to go anyways. Um, but have that conversation. I mean, don't don't let the fact that he's being so begrudging about planning ahead that it keeps you from seeing your family. I have one other tactic. Okay. Uh, something I do with my husband just because he is a serious introvert. Mm-hmm. I tell him he has two events that he has to go to with me per month, and he gets to choose in advance which two they are. You know, give him, hey, I've got two things. I want you to two family things. Figure out when's the best time. Right. Yeah. And obviously, like, that's going to be a compromise that'll look different in different marriages. But yeah, I like the idea of saying, like, okay, we're not going to be able to do my thing, which is we would go to everything. And we're not going to do your thing, which is never see my family again. (laughs) Um, And I would like to sometimes, as a couple, go see my family. And that's not unreasonable. So if we can together agree upon a number that works for both of us, even if it wouldn't be our first choice, then we can sort of plan ahead um, so that, all right, you know, we know next month we're going to be all getting together at grandma's house. What can you bring in advance? And, And, you know... If your husband cares this much about food, encourage him to channel that energy into making his own food. Because I worry that, like, the the thing that I would worry about here would be that he would say, like, fine, you make me something. And again, in any marriage, there's going to be some give and take. There's going to be acts of service that both people can perform for each other. I'm not saying begrudge your husband any help. But since his strategy up until now has been to kind of hold everyone else hostage so that if he can't get everything he wants, um, he's kind of a jerk about it. And again, this is so separate from the like medical issue. That's that's simply something outside of his control. I'm talking about the stuff that he very clearly can control. Um, if his response is like, "Fine, I'm either going to be like a real jerk 
when we get together or you can make me something. Uh, you know. He's a grown man. Let him be a grown man. Yeah. Let him look up a recipe. And if there's a whole like, well, I care about food, but I've never cooked anything. Like, you, can, <laughs> you can learn. Um, I, I think that that is a good idea because I, I don't understand right now why he has apparently never tried to bring something he can eat. It sounds like he does, just doesn't really like eating. Right. I don't know. Maybe I mean, I don't want to like speculate. He says he cares a lot about food. I'm, I'm sure this is frustrating for him. Like I, I, I cannot imagine that he like loves having serious medical restrictions. And then on top of that, you know, a lot of food that he doesn't like to eat. But it does sound like he's maybe kind of getting something out of um, feeling like, well, if this is not going to be centered around me, then no one's going to enjoy it. I'm not going to go. Yeah. My wife's not going to go. It makes me a little bit curious about depression involved. But I, I'm, I'm, I am speculating. Yeah, I don't know. And it's hard because there's a lot of behavior that absent other information certainly could fall under the umbrella of some sort of untreated depression, could fall under garden variety, bad behavior, could be totally unrelated. So so mostly I think just focus on the stuff that you can control or the stuff that you can talk about. Um, and certainly, yeah, ask. Um, what does it feel like? Do you, like maybe if you talk to him, he's like, actually, your family members are often super rude. And it's not just that I have a restricted set of items I can eat. It's that everyone's always asking me like frustrating questions or like pointing out what mm. I am or I'm not eating. And if that's coming up, then that's worth talking about with him and talking about with your family. Or what if it's that at every family function 24-7, they require that he eats nothing but chicken and waffles? I, I don't know. Maybe that's like a mandatory thing. Maybe they like shove it in his face and they're like, and plus syrup and plus everything that'll make you sick. Yes, certainly if anybody has been trying to push food on him that he knows will make him sick, um, that that would be something to address as well. I do want to give some room to the possibility that because um, some people sometimes get really judgmental about someone when they can't eat something. They sometimes take it as a personal affront um, because food is very intimate and people often um, make bad decisions when they feel slighted. Um, but yeah, there's there's you do not have to simply never see your family again because your husband is boorish about menus. No. Um, <laughs> no. Absolutely accommodate the medical stuff. Certainly, I don't think you're going to transform him into a guy who loves like oysters and, you know, all numbers of uh, sort of like outre food items. That is the first time I've said that word out loud. I don't know if outre. I pronounced it correctly. I know how to write it, but that's it. <laughs> yeah. Um, you don't have to push for that, but certainly he should take more responsibility for figuring out when and where he can eat something um, and for making alternate arrangements if he can't. And that's that's very specific, too. I like I feel anxious about the idea of someone listening to this and thinking that I'm saying anybody with medical restrictions is just like on your own. Show up with a backpack full of cashews or like get yelled at. <laughs> I definitely don't. I know what you do when I go to the restaurant with you now. Oh, oh man. man. I, a backpack full of cashews that just just like loose cashews, just like a, <laughs> a pill bottle that's exploded. That's just like all I can picture right now. Um, yeah. Yeah. Good luck. This will be a number of conversations. This next one is much more clear cut. I think this is one conversation. Um, I'm mad. <laughs> oh, yeah? Okay, oh, I want to hear this. Yeah, the subject is too soon. Dear Prudence, my husband died over a year and a half ago. While our marriages had its ups and downs, we had two beautiful daughters together. My younger daughter is currently separated from her husband, but dating the man she had an affair with. She recently took it upon herself to publicly scold me for going out to dinner and dancing with an old flame. I should be, quote, ashamed of my behavior and making light of my marriage. I felt humiliated and told her that I was never unfaithful to her father and that somebody who was still married but sleeping with another man had no room to judge me. I regret my words, but I was ambushed in public. I don't approve of my daughter's choices, but I don't think she gets to have an opinion on my love life when no one is allowed to have one about hers. She and her sister are actually no longer speaking to each other over this affair. I don't want to lose my daughter, but I don't know how to deal with her anymore. She's in her 30s, but acts like a spoiled teenager. Woo! It just sounds like so much grief is happening. I, I just cannot imagine how painful it would be to feel like a year and a half after the end of your husband's life to have like a nice evening out with an old flame and then to get publicly scolded by your child for dating a year and a half after you've been widowed. That's just... That's brutal. That's really awful. Um, and, uh, you know, I don't want to, like, sign off on anybody, like, saying the worst thing that comes to mind that they know is going to hurt somebody. Um, but that's said, like, that's kind of awesome. No, it's not <laughs> awesome because it's a sad situation. But, like, 
she really walked in. Do you know what I mean? Like she yeah. could not have set herself up more for that response if she had tried. But the the mom? daughter, the oh, daughter, the daughter. Like, by doing that, it's like, well, yeah, boy, you're 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 leaving open your big old blind spot here. Well, that that's why I think the daughter is going through an enormous amount of grief. Yeah, that like everything I see here reads as like I'm struggling, I'm struggling, I'm mm. struggling. Oh wow, yeah, I had not taken that into consideration, but the possibility that like. One of the reasons she's acting out um, is because she's grieving the loss of her dad. I think so. You know, I mean, and again, you know, making speculations here just from personal experience. um, I mean, I haven't lost my father, but even just times where I've uh, not had a great relationship with my father where I felt estranged from him. I definitely acted out by dating a bunch of guys like Mm -hmm. and I hate saying that because I know that's the stereotype. Right. It's like, oh, she's got Danny issues, which like drives me nuts. It is wild how women are the only people often accused of having daddy issues. Right. What is that the about? The problem is usually like dads who act badly. They seem to have the daddy issues. Also, behavioral psychology is a thing. Sure. And like, yeah. But yeah, absolutely. As, as you say, I think it's important for the letter writer to bear in mind, given that she wants to maintain a relationship with her daughter. And she already knows that she does not approve of what her daughter's doing. Mm. It's not like that's in question. Um, but to at least, can, you know, carry in mind as you have this conversation mm. that she is also grieving um, and that she may regret what she said. I hope she does. And, you know, in times where I've behaved really poorly, one of the best things that the people around me did was to hold me to task. Mm. You know, it made me it made me realize the sort of trance that I was under Hmm. and made me see, you know, how it was affecting the people that I loved. Yeah. So if you're this letter writer and you're in this position of both feeling strongly that your daughter was wrong to say that to you in the first place, but you also don't want to end your relationship. What's your next move going to be here? I think you establish really concrete boundaries Mm -hmm. like, you know, this is a, a way that I'm healing you know, and also, even if it has nothing to do with healing, I have a right to it. Right. Uh, and don't talk to me like that. And especially don't talk to me like that in public. I would like to have conversations with you. I, they can't sound like that. Yeah. Do you think that the letter writer should apologize like a little bit for what she said? Do you think it should not involve an apology? I'm kind of on the fence here. I think it depends on how apologies function mm-hmm. for them. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Like, I... I personally try not to apologize and try not to require apologies of the people in my life. Okay. Because I I find them to always be, you know, either a way that it brings, like, to add shame, Mm. you know, like, prove to me that you felt bad, you know. But that's very specific to me. I think for them, like, you know, it depends on how apologies function. Like, I've been in fights with my sister before where it's like, we are not moving forward until she hears the apology. Yeah. All right. Fine. Here it is. Yeah. Yeah. And I think certainly the the letter writer could say, like, I don't I'm not proud of having snapped back in public. Um, I don't want to talk like that with each other. Um, But to keep the focus, because I I really don't think like, you know, you did not you did not start this. Um, And that's pretty, pretty important to bear in mind. Yeah. And it also feels like it's kind of not about this. Yeah. Or at least not about what the mom said, you mean? Well, it it makes me wonder if there's a fear uh, on the part of the daughter. Um, and again, it's I don't know how you do this without going into stories, mm-hmm. you know, because like the the writer in me wants to like weave all kinds of yeah. <laughs> possibilities together. <laughs> I get that. I It does make me wonder if there's some fear for the daughter underneath all of this of if her relationship with her mother will change uh, if her mother has a new partner in her life. Right. Yeah. So I think maybe that's the way forward is to to say, like, I would love to talk again because that last conversation we had was really bad. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I want to make clear a couple of things. One is I'm not ashamed of my behavior and I was not making light of my marriage to your father. Nice. Um, I cared about him. Um we had two beautiful daughters together. Um, the fact that a year and a half after he's died, I sometimes go on dates with men does not mean that I did not love him and does not mean that I'm trying to erase him and doesn't mean he wasn't your father. Um, so there's just that. It could be also that in the span of time, 
between like you and I mm-hmm. seeing this mm-hmm. and the two of them having had that initial conversation, they had one in between where they called each other both sluts. Oh, man. <laughs> I, I, that's certainly possible. And I hope they got it out of their systems because right. I don't think that that's going to be a way to move forward. No. Um, and then to say something like, if you want to talk to me about missing your dad mm-hmm. or if you want to talk to me about your fears of what moving on will look like and if that means we've forgotten him, um, we can discuss that. But to go to judgment and to trying to shame me for doing something totally okay, that's not the way forward. So if you want to talk to me about what you're feeling or what you're afraid of, I'm here for that. Mm-hmm. Um, if you want to try to tell me that going on dates is shameful, I'm not available for that conversation. Yeah, nice. Yeah. Um, and to certainly, you know, you can you can certainly say, like, you know I don't agree with, you know, the way that your marriage ended, um, but I also don't want to throw that in your face every time we have a difficult conversation. So on my part, I'm going to try, um, if I have questions or thoughts or concerns about it, I will bring it up with you directly um, rather than use it as ammunition in a, f- in a future argument. Hey, that's really brilliant. Like to say, you know what? I use this as ammunition. I see this as a thing that we've both done. On my end, I don't want to do it anymore. Right. Yeah, because I think that'll be helpful because, you know, regardless of whether or not you thought it was a good decision on her part, um, that marriage is now over, right? Like, there's no bringing it back. She's not going to go back to her husband. They are separated. She's seeing the guy she left him for. Um, So, you know, you can't can't unring that bell. Um, And so, you know, if you want to talk to her a little bit about what she felt about the dissolution of her marriage, how she feels about her current relationship now. Um, you know, you can do that, but I don't think it'll help you either um, to to sort of join the camp of people who don't speak to her because she had an affair. Mm. Um, and I don't think, you, like, it doesn't sound like you want that. Like, it sounds like you love your daughter, you want to be close to her. I hope that she can respond to a follow-up conversation well. You say she's kind of lately been acting like a spoiled teenager, so maybe go in with some low expectations and just say, we don't have to figure this all out today. Um, I just want you to know what I want for our relationship and what I would hope in the future and in the long term. Um, And we can just kind of sit and let our feelings settle a little bit and talk about this again more when we feel up to it. And hopefully that is something she will be capable of doing. And if her response is just like, nope, I stand by what I said. You should not dance with men in public and I'm doing great. Then I think the most you can do is sort of say lovingly, I'm going to Talk to me when you feel differently. Like, let give me a call when you're ready to have a different kind of conversation. I would love to talk to you then. And that will save you at least um, the stress of trying to force um, a conversation when you know it's likely to go in this direction again. Especially if, you know, like I see that phrase acts like a spoiled teenager. It just signals to me somebody who isn't equipped with a whole lot of great communication tactics. Mm -hmm. So the learning curve is going to be big. Yep. And it's hard to, like, sometimes adults act really impulsively. Sometimes adults get really defensive. Um, And I think that there should be some space for that without kind of going back to, like, well, I'm your mom and I remember what you were like as a teenager. So if you act in ways that I don't like, I'm always going to be able to invoke that as a way of sort of saying, we can't talk adult to adult. It's back to mom and child living under my roof. Like, I don't think she's going to respond well to that. I, I Even if I were doing something along these lines, um, if I felt like the conversation somebody was trying to have with me was one of, you are a child again, I, I just don't think I'd be able to handle that conversation if if that was the, the terms that they were setting it under. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I'm sorry. I hope you get to see him again. I hope you get to have a nice second date or with somebody else. Um, I, I know that you know this, but just... You know, I'm glad that you've been able to, like, go on a date with a guy that you've had a good time with. Uh, I also want to make it clear that when I say I wonder if she's acting out, it's not because there's some sort of, like, value charge or moral judgment on a woman who is uh, sleeping with another man who is not her monogamous partner. That's a choice. That's a completely fine choice. The aspect of it that I was responding to is the phrase acts like a spoiled teenager. For what it's worth, I feel comfortable saying that sleeping with somebody without your monogamous partner's knowing is a choice that harms that partner. It does not necessarily make you a bad person or or mean that you can't there go on to make better and different choices. Um, but I, I do think that it's not the worst thing that you can do, but it is a hurtful choice, um, regardless of whether uh, you are a man or a woman doing it. So 
will look at us. We disagreed. I don't always get to disagree. I know, I'm, on the, I'm on the fence. I'm, I've been thinking about this a lot, about well, the, the quote-unquote cheating question. Sure. And, and I mean, it's one of those things where, like, uh, people can often be going through really difficult times, and I can really understand where they're coming from. They're going through a lot. It certainly would not mean that I would, like, not want to be friends with somebody or say, like, man, every day you're just going to have to do penance and you're not a good person until you do. I think certainly lots of people do it, and... Um, uh, certainly there are uh, yeah i don't want to mean i don't, I don't want to make it sound like it just makes you a jerk and that's it and you need to like fix it i just mean i think um if your partner thinks that you two are monogamous and you cheat on them generally speaking uh, even though there can be lots of different contexts for different situations you know fair point you have great fair reasons point. i think the the thing itself is still harmful again People bounce back from it. Marriages recover. Um, sometimes there's a lot of other things going on. But I do think it's okay to say, you know, it's a decision that deceives and hurts somebody else. I think that phrasing that you just gave is so key. Uh, if your partner thinks that you're in a monogamous relationship and then you're not, that's that's not super fair. Yeah, and we also, you know, frankly, we don't know what their marriage was like. It could be that the marriage was really bad. Um, and again, that would not make that choice fantastic. Um, but it, it's useful context. Like, we just don't know. And it, it's not one of those things where I think it would fall to the level of, like, you are now a person I don't talk to. Mm, mm-hmm. Unless any attempts to talk about it, they were such a jerk to you about it. It was finally like, I can't keep doing this. Right. You know, one of the things that I've really loved about this show is all of the ways that uh, you shed light on agency that I forget about. Agency's hard. Yeah, I, I forget about it sometimes, too. <laughs> Like, I, I feel at least like, OK, I can do a pretty good job figuring out when I'm given a paragraph of somebody else's problem and like a quiet, mostly dark room to think seriously about it for 20 <laughs> minutes. It's like in real time that it gets a lot trickier. Um, but thank you. Oh, I hope that I can say thank you without squeaking. Let me try that one again. Thank you. Oh, God, this next letter. Yes. Oh, this one is this one's rough. Um, this made me so sad. Uh, this made me sad and scared for the letter writer. Um, would you, would you read it? Here goes. The subject is, my husband wants to die. Do I have the right to stop him? Dear Prudence, several years ago, my husband told me that he found life unbearable. It was devastating to hear, but we had a long conversation and he agreed he'd meet with a therapist and would take no action while our children were still at home. He's kept his word gone to therapy regularly and has steadfastly insisted through it all that he finds his life dreary and wants to end it. Our youngest moves out soon, and after that happens, my husband intends to kill himself. If he was depressed or irrational, I would have no hesitation in calling the authorities. But he's been consistent in his views for years, explored all available alternatives, and remains determined to carry through. I also fear that involving others would put them at risk, as he is quite formidable. I'm at a loss. Do I just submit to his will? Do I even have the right to try to stop him at this point? That is terrifying. Yeah, I just, I don't even have a sound to make right now. Um, I think one thing that feels worth distinguishing here is that I think there's more going on simply than just that your husband needs and is seeking treatment. It also feels like he is using the threat of suicide um, to keep you close and to keep you keeping mm. secrets. Um, and that worries. That's that's why I said, like, I'm worried for the letter writer's safety. I'm, I'm kind of... Yeah, I see that now. You that know, sentence, I also fear that involving others would put them at risk as he is quite formidable. Yeah, the, the end is really what got me thinking this is like an abusive threat of suicide. Mm. Um, the the implication that he would try to hurt other people, um, the language around submitting to his will um, and asking if she has the right to try to stop him. Mm. Um, that that really concerns me. So letter writer, you have spent years um, trying to help your husband and going, you know, helping him find a therapist. Um, but I think what you need right now is help yourself. And so I think um, telling somebody else in your life that you trust, speaking to your doctor, speaking to a therapist of your own um, about these concerns that you have and and answering really honestly the question like, do you feel safe in the house with him? Do you think there's any chance that he would try to hurt you? Um, and to answer that question really, really honestly, because it sounds like you do fear that. 
and that that's part of the reason that you're writing now is that um, if I try to quote unquote stop him, um, he will also try to kill me. And that's what divides this from like, it's not just a question of like, does a person have some kind of right to end their life if they have tried um, other uh, other resources? Um, I think this this is more to do with a man who has either implicitly or possibly explicitly explicitly made it clear that he may hurt other people. And at that point, um, you know, your safety letter writer is my number one concern. Um, so please talk to your doctor. Um, please talk to a therapist. Um, please talk to somebody else in your life um, and, you know, uh, figure out what you need to do to be safe. Um, I think, uh, you know, I know that it is not a, a perfect option, but I think the National Suicide Prevention Hotline um, or even the National Domestic Abuse Prevention Hotline may be useful to you. And we'll try to add those in at the end of the show. Um, because what you're describing here just sounds like so much more than simply a husband um, who is struggling um, with his own thoughts of suicidal ideation. Um, ah, man, yeah. Uh, you know, that line too, if he was depressed or irrational, I would have no hesitation in calling the authorities, but he's been consistent in his views for years. Um, that, that, that is not the opposite of irrational. Um, a person can be yeah. consistently irrational. A person can develop a twisted sort of logic that they are very um, – that they adhere to, but that does not mean that the way that they are behaving is safe or appropriate or healthy. It also makes me really wonder about what's going on with, you know, who's in charge of what is and isn't irrational in this relationship. Right, right. Like if he can kind of logic his way to – here's why I should be able to do this, then her job is just to support, keep that secret, um, be present for that, you know. That that's how he's presenting it. Right. Um, so I think you have done a lot already to try to offer him help and support. It does not sound like it has been um, useful. And I don't mean to say that, like, help is fixing someone until they no longer struggle with suicidal ideation. But I mean the way that he is dealing with this, which is like, you, wife, are kind of responsible for helping me carry out a plan where we get the children out of the house. And then I get to harm myself in a way that may involve other people. Um, and, 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 you know, again, like the idea of we'll get the kids out and safe, but you'll stay here with me. That scares me a lot. That that. That makes me question what his intentions are for you. Um, and, you know, there's enough red flags in here that I think um, you should be talking um, to, you know, a, a, a medical authority, a mental health authority, experts in the field, people in your life, um, and be very, very honest about um, whether or not you think he would ever hurt you. Um, because if there's even a chance that you think the answer might be yes. Um, and you're hoping that if you don't try to get in his way and act just right, you will be able to keep him from harming you. Then you are in an abusive situation and you need help and support in getting out because my guess is that um, he may try to escalate if you do try to leave or if you do try to talk about this openly or if you do ask for help and support. Yeah, I, I think right now it sounds like your husband's sort of... Um, irrational logic has sort of carried the order of the day and that both you and him sort of believe because he has wanted to do this for a really long time, because he has talked about it for a really long time, he is sort of earning credits toward getting to do it. Mm. Um, and I think that that is not um, an accurate view of reality and that you need to talk about this with other people in your life. You need to stop keeping this secret for him um, because it affects you and your own safety. Um, yeah, there is this like really alarming that that's amazing that now that you're saying about it i i hadn't even thought about it this way that if this is such a source of pain then why aren't we opening up and involving more people yeah i think the fact that it's just him and his therapist every week i'm just wondering how honest is he with this therapist um what are the goals of that therapy why why does it seem that the goals of that therapy seem to be he talks to one person every once in a while but mm -hmm. nobody else mm -hmm. talks about this um and again i can certainly understand that there's lots of shame and social judgment when it comes to things like depression or suicidal ideation but um 
just reading between the lines here, there's so many red flags. And the fact that she's apparently talked about this with no one else makes me feel like this is a strategy rather than um, uh, somebody who is actually struggling with suicidal ideation that is not also about violence and control of other people. Mm hmm. Um, and it is hard. Like I did, you know, it took me a couple times to read through this to think like, why do I feel so unsettled? I mean, certainly it would be an unsettling letter no matter what. Um, of course, it would be difficult and painful if the person that you loved and married um, was was hopeless and suicidal. But it felt like there's more here and I'm not quite sure what it is because it doesn't seem like the letter writer is quite aware of what it is. But I think it's that. I think it's there's there's clear themes of domination, control and the threat yes. of violence in order to keep her compliant. Um, and I do want to acknowledge that in a situation like this, if you were to talk about it, if he were to feel like you had broken a trust, if he were to feel like you were trying to leave him, often that's when the um, odds of violence go up. Um, and so, letter writer, I hope that you can be very careful and judicious about who you talk to. I hope that you can make those calls um, in private, somewhere where you know that your husband won't be able to listen in, um, that you can make a safety plan for figuring out how you would um, – get out of the house if you needed to get out of the house in a hurry um, and to do so in ways that do not unnecessarily draw attention um, to yourself and to your choices. But um, if nothing else, please don't feel like only if you follow his rules or do the right things in the right order that you can keep him from hurting himself. Um, I think that's the biggest thing to take away from this is not if you are a good enough partner and a good enough wife, you can keep people safe from him. Like he is making implicit or explicit threats and you're you're not going to be able to um stop him from choosing to do those things um by um being compliant um and, and not looking out for your own safety so i hope so much that you do i hope so much that you reach out i'm so sorry this sounds absolutely agonizing i cannot imagine going this for you, through this for years um and i hope that you write back and let us know how you're doing mm. All right. So, you know, just continuing in the veins of um, challenging husbands of varying degrees, um, this next letter is all about, um, yeah, just a, again, another another husband who has not yet um, taken the time to find good, useful coping strategies for his feelings is is my take on it. And with a nice side dose of, of ableism. It is not a nice side dose. It is a bad side dose. Oh, boy. So the subject is, our baby probably won't be a serial killer, right? Dear Prudence, like anyone who has ever written to you with a relationship problem, my marriage is almost completely perfect except for one big place where it isn't, babies. Before we got married, I had a serious talk with my husband about having kids. I told him I wanted them, and he needed to let me know if he didn't. He said he was okay without them, but that he would love to have babies with me. I should stop here and say that my husband is a pessimist, although like all pessimists, he calls himself a realist. Every big decision is met with a list of all the ways it could go wrong before he finally makes the leap and is almost always happy with the outcome. Now we've been married for four years and I've been trying to get pregnant for three. We've started fertility treatments and I'm due to start the IVF process in three weeks. My husband is freaking out. He says he still wants to do it and is all in, but he's constantly talking about everything that could go wrong. What if it ruins our lives? What if the kid has a disability or is a serial killer? What if he hates it? What if we both lose our jobs and can't pay back the substantial loan we already took out to have the IVF? On and on and on. This is already a difficult process for me, and there's no guarantee the treatment will even work. I told him we didn't have to do it, but his answer is always that he's just talking, and he needs to be able to tell me his fear. I want kids, but I'm now terrified something will go wrong, and he'll say, I told you so. I work with kids and have a number of younger siblings, so I know parenting isn't easy. And I, of course, have my own doubts, too, but his are starting to overwhelm me. How do I continue to support my husband without being consumed by his doubts and pessimism? Oh, man, that is so hard. Yeah. Number one, I'd like to draw a big distinction between talking about your fears and endlessly running out a yes. list of bad scenarios. Um, <laughs> they are not the same thing. And your husband is not having a healthy series of conversations with you about fears and what you guys will do in a number of possible circumstances. Um, he is trying to, um, you know, fix his own anxiety by just running on a hamster wheel of anxiety, which actually just begets more. So his strategy right now is not just talking about his fears. No. Um, the other one that just really stood out to me, um, it, it's not that your husband said, hey, let's talk through 
um, how we would want to help our child if they were born with a disability or if either one of us ever became disabled um, and and talk honestly about what would be hard about that, what we would want to do, how we would want to prioritize our child's care, how we would step up and learn more. It's just what if? Wouldn't that be awful? Um, and that is an attitude that is part of what makes life really, really difficult um, for people with disabilities um, is this idea that I only want a child if I can be if I can guarantee like a certain degree of physical ability and anything other than that would just be awful. Um, and that that just that breaks my heart. That's 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 that feels a little distinct from everything else, actually, like because you mm-hmm. can kind of say like, well, no one knows if someone's going to be a serial killer. They're actually, you know. Not that common. We just happen to have a lot of documentaries and movies about them. So we think that they're (laughs) everywhere. Um, And, uh, you know, we could cross that bridge when we come to it, I guess. Um, If our child kills people serially. um, There's also, yeah, there's a couple milestones before killing people serially. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You know, step one is just going to be like (laughs) breastfeeding or bottle feeding, you know? (laughs) Right, lots of holding. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, but but yeah, the, the thing, the remark about, you know, what if our child has a disability? That one just really stood out to me. And I think you'll want to have a conversation there about um, uh, how would we love and support our child would be the question there. Not let's not do it because what if we didn't have the, you know, yeah, yeah. Right. Um, That's just, you know, that's not great. Um, So that aside, uh, you know, you guys have been trying to have a kid for three years. That sounds really challenging. I mean, I also really feel for her that on top of all of this, like, future tripping that he's having, these thought patterns that he's going through, she's going through a lot of hormone treatments. Yeah. Well, is she, hang on. Is she, she says, due to start the IVF process in three weeks, has that started yet, do you think, then? Like, would she be already taking injections or? I believe so, because I believe there's some prep. Okay. Uh, and this is near in my future as well, so. Okay. Uh, that I just really... Uh, empathize that's really hard yeah and especially being tasked with being the person to receive all the anxiety right that's not fair yeah yeah it's it's one thing to have a series of difficult conversations it's another thing to say like you my wife need to just be like available for this big eeyore cloud that kind of never lifts Um, and it's not like she doesn't have her own fears right yeah so i see this happen a lot you know in um a lot of like relationship dynamics where one person is tasked with being the optimist. Mm. And it's so unfair. Yeah. And it's scary because then you're afraid that if you voice your fears too, then the, down goes the ship. Right. Because they're not going to listen and talk through it with you. They're just going to say, oh, God, you've given me eight yeah. new things to freak out about. Now they're, now we're both spinning out. Yeah. Yeah. So what your husband's doing is not just talking. What your husband is doing is unloading an unreasonable number of unfixable, unknowable future scenarios. Um, And what, you know, what he needs to do is figure out when and where he can have a productive conversation with you about them that is not every day. Um, And the rest of the time, you know, he needs to figure out how to manage those anxieties, whether that be get a journal and write his feelings down. I was going to say, one time uh, I was tasked with keeping a note card mm-hmm. and tallying every time I had the same fear. Yeah. And after a while, you know, after five tallies in a day, like it, it was more annoying to take out the pen and note card than it was to have the thought. Right. And it kind of helps you realize like, oh, this is not simply a totally proportionate response to a realistic threat. This is my brain spinning out possible nightmare scenarios because it makes me feel safe to be always anxious. Exactly. Because if I'm always anxious, then an anxiety can't threaten my happiness because I have no happiness. (laughs) I threw it in the ocean. Exactly. Which is, I think, a big part of being the I told you so hero. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like you're you're standing on the sideline instead of actually being in the game. Right. So, yeah, number one is um, he needs to take some responsibility for managing his – unreasonable anxieties, which is, you know, write them down in a journal, see a therapist, um, schedule a weekly coffee with a friend you are not married to and having a baby, trying to have a baby with so that you can just kind of unload and then ask them how they're doing. Figure out a space that's not just talking to you all the time because it's not just talking. That's not what it is. Um, And then to, you know, letter writer to advocate for yourself. When we have these conversations, I'm going to need to talk about the things that I'm afraid of. And I would like to put that pessimism to good use by saying, if this happens, what will we do? How will we learn more? How will we arm ourselves with information and make a plan? 
Um, I want I want to come up with action plans together. And then also, I think, to have a bigger conversation about like, how are we doing? Three years of trying to have a baby in, about to start IVF, you know, do we both have kind of an idea in mind at which point we would no longer want to try um, having a baby biologically and look into other options or taking a break? You know, you've already taken out loans. You're already three years in. Um, check in about that and be be brutally honest with one another. Like, um, even if you don't decide we're going to stop, if you both just want to say, I feel exhausted. I feel exhausted and like this might never happen. And if this doesn't happen and we spend all this money on IVF, will I feel like at least we tried everything or will I feel like, wow, I wish we hadn't taken it this far. Yeah, I think that's the antidote to being the I told you so hero or having one in the equation. Yeah. There's one thing I do also want to add that I'm hearing from the husband is um, there's this subtext there that is, I'm afraid I'm going to be inadequate. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if when uh, he's saying, you know, you got to listen to my fears, you got to listen to my fears. I wonder if there's a way to ask him, what are these fears actually about? Mm-hmm. A lot of it I'm hearing is like, what if I can't provide for blank scenario? Right. What if I can't provide for this other scenario? Yeah. Yeah. And so, so to just kind of stop and talk through like what we do, like what if we have a baby and you hate it? I guess my first question would be like, on what grounds? Like, <laughs> do you mean that you would feel an instant sense of panic and regret because you're now responsible to something that needs you? Because mm. that's big and that makes sense. But if you mean you would just look at a baby and think like this baby's the worst, like, Probably that won't happen because babies don't do anything. I mean, my dad, when he first gazed at me, was terrified Mm -hmm. and thought I looked like a lizard. Of course. Terror, panic, a sense of inadequacy, a fear of harming what appears to be a blank slate of a baby. Those all make a lot of sense. Um, Talk about those things so that they don't feel like the unspeakable. Um, Because if it's, you know, what would you do if you, you know, had a baby and your first thought was fuck, you know? (laughs) Like, come up with a worst-case scenario plan. Like, you know, well, we could give the child up for adoption. We could find a loving couple who is desperate to have and raise a child and give the child to them. That's a worst-case scenario for us. We would feel very foolish having, you know, done all this to make a baby and then changing our minds. But we could do that if we had to. And that, that, would, that would make life challenging in a lot of ways, but it would be okay. No one would be dead. Um, you know, we could also go to therapy, hire some help, um, ask our family members to help us with raising the child, um, act lovingly towards the child regardless of whether or not we felt, uh, you know, indifferent or anxious or panicked in the moment. Um, And probably if you do that, if it is your child and you've worked this hard to to make one, eventually you will, you know, one day see the baby smiling or looking, looking like the face of the person you love and you will think, I have feelings of warmth toward this baby, you know, like, (laughs) hey, postpartum for fathers is a real thing. It's a thing that happens. It's a it's a good thing to prepare for. Yeah. And And there are a lot of there are a lot of new parent fears here as well. And I also like. You know, stop and check in with both yourself and your husband, like he started out by saying, I'm okay without kids, but I'd love to have babies with you. And now that you're, you know, on the verge of taking another step towards trying to have a child, um, you know, he's sort of spinning out. You know, ask that question, like, get get really honest with each other. Like, is, are, is part of the reason that you're bringing all these things up because you feel like you cannot say to me, I actually don't want to anymore. Right. Because better to have that conversation now than when you're, you know, a couple months pregnant or when you're holding a baby. And that's, you know, a little hard because sometimes people will do anything to avoid saying the thing they don't want to say. Um, but certainly this state of affairs cannot continue. Um, you need more from your husband than this. He, he needs to figure out other ways of dealing with his feelings than just telling you all of them the second they come to mind. Yeah. Fears and feelings are a bit different Mm -hmm. to say I'm, I'm feeling unprepared. I'm feeling terrified. It's different to say than to say, what if, what if, what if, what if, what if? Yeah. Um, and it may also help to talk to other people, um, uh, who have spent a long time trying to get pregnant because a, a lot of parents, first-time parents, panic beforehand. And a lot of people have the questions of, what if my baby's a murderer? What if, <laughs> yes. you know, I have no feelings of love? What if, unlike the vast, vast majority of people who have children, my first reaction to my child is just, I hate this. You know, this is not an uncommon fear. No, it's also not an uncommon reality. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, and the answer is not just going to be, don't worry, as soon as you see the baby, you will never have a fear again. No. <laughs> Life is full of fear. Life is serious. A, a child is a big thing, and it makes sense that big feelings come up. You just got to figure out a better strategy than than what you're doing right now, my guy. All right. Oh, man. I Very narrow focus this week, uh, which is just bad relationships. <laughs> but at least I don't have to read this one. You have to. I do. Subject is, friend is enabling her boyfriend having sex with much younger people. Dear Prudence, a friend of mine is in a relationship with a much older man. She's 25, he's 45. They often have sex with other people together, which I usually don't care about. Recently, she told me that they had a threesome with a 17-year-old. The legal age of consent here is 16. I said this was absolutely not okay that there was no way a 45-year-old should ever be sexually involved with a 17-year-old, and that she was enabling this. She told me the girl initially didn't really want to sleep with her boyfriend and just wanted to sleep with her. She has now ended the friendship and uninvited me from her wedding because I confronted her about this. There have been other red flags, but until now, I have supported her because I don't want her to be more isolated and dependent on him. But if she's bringing other, more vulnerable people into the situation, I have to draw the line. Am I right that this is completely unacceptable? And is there anything else I should do beyond calling her out on it? Man. (laughs) I'm so sorry. This is deeply fucked up. Yeah. Um, I, I, I do think that the letter writer has drawn the line in the right place like i can understand why you know your friend being 25 to his 45 there's enough of a gap there um that you may have at first been sort of primarily concerned for whether or not she was being in some ways manipulated or taken advantage of but she is also you know she is in her mid-20s she is an adult the difference between 25 and 17 is pretty serious and if she is pressuring 17 year olds into having sex with her partner um against their stated wishes you know at at best, you know, she is behaving incredibly manipulatively. Yes. And at worst, she is committing sexual assault. I was going to say, this sounds like sexual assault. Yeah. I just, um, yeah, you know, and so the, the, you know, the thing about uh, the age of consent being 16, you know, being one birthday on the right side of the law is one thing, but I think you are absolutely right to say, like, that does not make this an okay situation. And and certainly when we know that the girl initially did not want to, that, that the idea of sleeping with another woman within, you know, 10 years of her own age felt like a very different proposition from sleeping with a 45-year-old man. And frankly, the, you don't even need a reason to, to want to sleep with one person and not another person is the only reason you would need. Um, that yeah. is incredibly, incredibly worrying behavior. That is a huge red flag. Um, and you were right to, at this point, say, okay, my concern about her being isolated and dependent now um, has to give way to my concern for the more vulnerable person in the situation, which was the 17-year-old girl. What What would you advise doing in that scenario? Like, would you – because I know if it was if it was me, I would, like, wonder, should I call the parents of the, the 17-year-old? Um, I, I think, you know, I don't think that the letter writer knows who this 17-year-old person was. Mm. I don't know that they would have any way of getting in touch with that person. I think if there were, if I were to advise anyone to do any contacting, it would not be to that person's parents. Mm. It would be to the person in question simply to say, are you okay? Are you okay? Yeah. Do you need anything? How can I help support you? And if their answer to that is, you know, nothing, leave me alone, respect that. If their answer is there is something that you can help me do and a way that you can help support me, take that into consideration. But to um, go to that person's parents, I think, would to once again. No, you're absolutely right. Because she needs agency in this situation, right? Like yes. She's already had it possibly taken from her once. Um, mm. And mm-hmm. I think it would you you would really want to stress if you had any way of getting in touch with her and you thought she might welcome hearing from you. Um, to really stress. Yeah, and what I did there is something I feel like is um, a common um, pitfall when it comes to ad- adolescence and um, anything, 
is treating them like they're not also thinking beings with agency. Well, and that's the hard thing, right? Like if this, if you know, if this was a clear legal issue, if this person was under the age of consent and was a younger teenager, I would say at that point, absolutely, you know, try to find and involve the parents if that person has been like. Um, but if that person is over the age of consent, um, then I think the thing to focus on is not um, her parents, but simply. Because her age was not the the problem. The problem was that she went over there expecting to have sex with one person and was either talked into or manipulated or pressured or coerced into having sex with someone else. Um, So since that's the situation, it's not her age that's the factor, it would make more sense to go to her as the victim rather than to involve her family Mm. um, had she been a a child whose charge needed to know so that they could help protect her. um, But yeah, so... um, I, I would be real careful around, you know, if you don't know who the 17-year-old is, I don't know that digging around and contacting them out of the blue and saying, like, hey, I'm friends with the people who, like, may have either se- sexually assaulted you or at the very least put you in a really, like, uncomfortable situation. Um, and I want to know if you need anything that might not be welcome. Mm-hmm. Um, but absolutely to say to your friend, this is not okay. I'm not comfortable with this. This feels predatory. Um and manipulative. Predatory is the word. Predatory is the word. Um, and I, I don't support it. I, I love you. I hope that you can get out of this relationship. My, you know, I'm available if you are ever ready to leave. But when you started involving other people, it started getting bigger than just you. And I can't I can't support this wedding. Yeah, I like the ending the friendship and uninviting her from the wedding feels almost like, hey, you know what? Then you're doing it right. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, if there's anything else you can do beyond calling her out on it, I I don't know that there is. Like, again, if you knew who this person was, if she had said to you, yep, she really didn't want to do it. But then we just like bowled over her and did it anyways. Um, mm. Then, you know, you would at least have the question of, do I involve the authorities in this? But that raises a whole host of other questions. Like, would that actually improve the victim's quality of life? Is that what the victim wants? Um, would you be railroading over her again? So I think you know, the question of have I done all I can in this situation, you you may have already done all you can. And your friend has made it very clear that she has no interest in examining this behavior or in trying to make amends or to behave differently in the future. And that's really sad. Like, because I, I, I'm sure that there are ways in which he is manipulating um, or taking advantage of her. But yeah, I mean, it also sounds like it's just getting started. Yeah. Yeah, no, and she's doubling down on this, um, and and she has not asked you for help. She has not said, I didn't want to do it, but he made me. She has said, this other girl didn't want to, but I made her. I mean, wow. I, or, and, sorry, I don't want to, like, overstate. It doesn't, she did not say, I made her, but it certainly sounds like there was a pretty big question of whether or not this young woman, this, this teenager, um, meaningfully consented to what they did together, and that's a... You got to talk, you know, if you don't, if you don't ask your friends about that, when they tell you something like that, like no one's going to. No. Um, and I'm really sorry. That's just dark. Um, and, you know, if you, I, I think the only other thing that I would say is if you happen to know other people um, who you think may be involved or other people that you see them maybe like trying to hang around or to rope into. Um, I was just thinking, if, yeah, is there a way to make a, people aware? Yeah, I, I, again, like, um, there's a limit to what you can do. But if you know of someone else, like if somebody ever says, hey, do you know these people? Um, you know, they're they're trying to ask me out or to see if I'll join them. What do you know? Um, I, I think certainly to say I actually had to end my friendship with them because um, there was a, a, a question of whether or not um, – they pressured a very young person um, into having sex with them and they did not want to talk about it. They did not want to hear about it. Then that is a good thing to say. Um, and I'm just so sorry. Mm. That's all I got. I just feel really bad about this one. This one just feels heavy. Yeah. I'm just uh, the 45 year old guy like cruising. Yeah. Yeah. And I just like, Mm. Mm-mm. Yep. You're a grown man. You've got this young woman. Who who it sounds like in some ways he's just kind of using as bait for younger women. That's what it sounds like. Which is just fucked up. And and it sounds like he also knows just enough to stay on the right side of the law. Um at which, least in terms of people's age. Again, going back to that word of predatory. Yeah. That yeah. that calculating behavior. 
Yeah. So I'm just really, really sorry. And I'm, I'm, at least you don't have to go to that fucking wedding. Exactly. <laughs> you know, um, that's the one small, small upside, which is that I, I cannot imagine. Don't, I mean, don't, like, even if she were later to say, like, hey, all's forgiven, I'm not mad anymore and tried to invite you, don't go. Don't go. go. Yeah. This is the right outcome. All right. So the next one is actually kind of like lighthearted, given everything else. I actually kind of feel like, oh, this one's a nice little throwaway. Um, uh, the subject is non-binary top surgery. Um, Dear Prudence, I'm a non-binary trans person who's interested in getting top surgery. The insurance industry doesn't have much room for non-binary people who want to access medical transition. So I'm thinking of saying that I'm FTM in order to get my surgery funded through my insurance. Is this offensive or would it otherwise be harmful to trans men? Which is like, that was like a very sweet question. Like, um, and certainly like, I, I, I don't want to set myself up as somebody who can like give out dispensations. Like, no, it is not offensive <laughs> to any trans man alive. Or like, yes, it is offensive to all. Or like, it is offensive to 62% of trans men. <laughs> and you have to talk to, you know, 30 before you can do this. Um, so for starters, I'll just say, um, this does not take anything away from trans men. This does not, I mean, I... No, no, this does not harm trans men. And, and, and frankly, I think the idea that um, you would have to in some way like apologize to or get buy-in from a trans guy, you know, that idea itself that only binary trans people should be able to access whatever aspects of medical transition um, are, are right for them. That, that, I, I don't think that that is something that you need to buy into. I don't think that non-binary means that you don't have a right to medical transition. So that, I think, is just a belief that you don't have to worry about, that you don't have to let influence your decision. You have the same right to medical transition as any binary trans guy. Um, and if, if, if trans surgery is going to be useful and meaningful to you, um, then I, you should have it. I hope you get it. I hope that the insurance industry can eventually catch up to realize that um, there are lots of reasons why top surgery might be genuinely necessary for somebody's well-being. Um, that does not mean that they are like a binary trans guy. Um, and if you need a little certificate, no, no, that's dumb. We shouldn't get into that. No. Um, you, you, yeah. Um, so the question I don't think should be, you know, is it wrong to do this? No, absolutely not. The question is simply, um, make sure that you're doing everything you need to, to take care of yourself. So like, certainly, um, I, I cannot encourage you to like call up your insurance company and be like, you guys won't like, I, like, I don't, I don't think they're going to be calling you a year from now and being like, are you binary yet? Like, <laughs> um, so I, I will also say that medical gatekeeping is real and shitty and that there is a long history yes. of trans people having to say or do things that are not necessarily true to their experience in order to get the medical care that they need. So, you know. Bear that in mind as you make the choices that are right for you. Um, and, you know, if, if, if top surgery is something that is necessary and useful to you, either in terms of allevi alleviating dysphoria, if that's a phrase that, that resonates with you. I'm so sorry for saying the word resonates. God, I sound like a monster. <laughs> um, or whether it's necessary for your quality of life, um, for, for the ease of, like, not having to bind. Um, uh, like mm. those are all excellent reasons. And I would say whatever information you need to provide your insurance company with in order to make sure that you can get this procedure done, you should do. And certainly if you trust your doctor um, to talk about things confidentially, um, you can certainly consider talking to them. If you don't feel safe asking that question to your doctor, if you believe that they would try to withhold care from you, um, I would simply say that my advice is do whatever you need to do or say in order to get the care that you need and that you would not ever be harming another trans person by doing that. You could not possibly harm another trans person by getting the care that you need. And I hope that your surgery goes great and I hope that you get it and I hope that your insurance is able to cover it for you. And I don't think that I've said anything that could get me in trouble. <laughs> Where's that certificate? I, yeah, I need, I need my own certificate. I need to, I need to like, kick this up the trans guy chain or something and like uh, just just get a whole wallet full of them um but yeah top surgery is great i love it real bad i um it's fantastic you can't see me but i'm smiling um glowing even glowing i'm very glowy um 
And before we end the show, I just want to let you all know that uh, the National Domestic Violence Hotline that we recommended um, for the caller whose husband was threatening suicide and possibly to harm others, it's 1-800-799-7233. And I really, really hope that you will give them a call and that you will do so at a time and a place when you know your husband will not be able to um, listen in on your conversation. And I wish you all the best. Oh, my goodness. Um, This was a journey. We went yes, it was. so many different places. How are you feeling? I'm I'm feeling uh th- powerful's not the right word, but the agency. Just thinking about all of the all of the ways in which we all have agency that so often when we're afraid, um we forget is just really like Ah, I can breathe differently right now. It's sometimes slightly energizing. I sometimes leave the show feeling like I need to go lie down in a dark room for a full hour. I can imagine. Billy Eichner from Parks and Recreation Voice. A full hour! (laughs) Um, And sometimes I leave feeling like, oh man, I could go like do something. And I'm a little more in the like, I could go do something camp right now. So I might go do something. Yeah, let's go do something. All right, let's think about it. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Um, I would love to have you back sometime soon. I hope you have a fabulous rest of the day. Thank you. I've had an amazing time being here. Yes. Thanks for listening to Dear Prudence. Our producer is Phil Circus. Our theme music was composed by Robin Hilton. Don't miss an episode of the show. Head to slate.com slash dearprudence to subscribe. And remember, you can always hear more Prudence by joining Slate Plus. Go to slate.com slash prudipod to sign up. If you want me to answer your question, call me and leave a message at 401-371-DEAR, that's 3327, and you might hear your answer on an episode of the show. You don't have to use your real name or location, and at your request, we can even alter the sound of your voice. Keep it short, 30 seconds, a minute tops. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.